The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. As we begin our our study this morning in the scriptures, I want to start with a a story. Story takes place in the uh, latter half of the 1800s. And to do that, I need to introduce you to two gentlemen. Um, These two men go by the names of Othniel Marsh and Edward Cope. And so the guy on the left is Othniel Marsh. And I got to say, you know, you don't come across the name Othniel too too often. It's a shame. I mean, it's a strong name, Othniel. Othniel Marsh and Edward Cope. They are not just famous for their incredible facial hair. They are, uh, they are also famous. Most people um, would include them on their list of the 10 most influential paleontologists. Now you say, who reads lists of influential paleontologists? Apparently I do, okay? I do this, and I do it for you. I want you to know important things, okay? So these, let me tell you about these guys. They gave their lives to digging up dinosaur bones. They, they dug up dinosaur bones, and they did it with such a, a flurry, such a frenzy, that they go down in history as having found some of the most specimens and having discovered some of the most new species of anyone, uh, of, of anyone in history. I mean, they're just known. They just found so many dinosaur bones and so many skeletons. Edward Cope, um, I think, still holds the record for the most scientific articles uh, articles published. That's the guy with the with the curly mustache. He he, uh, I think he still holds the record. It was something like 1,500 scientific articles published because he would just just write these as he found new discoveries and new dinosaurs, and they named many dinosaurs as well. Now, Othniel Marsh, the guy with the humongous, awesome beard, he's the key has, uh, is remembered for finding some of the more popular dinosaurs we think of today. So actually, let me show you the skull of a, of a dinosaur he found. It's this skull right here. He was the first to uh, name this dinosaur. Okay, quick, dinosaur trivia. What dinosaur is this? Well done. That is a Triceratops, and he's the one who actually named that dinosaur, and also, he also named this dinosaur, the Stegosaurus. He found those, um, and so they, they started out in their relationship. They met in, in their studies in Germany. They were from the United States, went over to Germany to study paleontology, and they became friends. They came back to the United States to start digging all around throughout the United States for dinosaur bones. Actually, uh, Marsh, the big beard guy, I'll just call him Bearded Marsh so we can keep these straight, okay? Bearded Marsh, he became the, uh, the first professor of paleontology ever. He was at Yale, or at least here in the United States. He was at Yale. And uh, Edward Cope was just, they're both going all around the country trying to get bones. And it's not just finding dinosaur bones that's the tricky part. It's finding them, figuring out what it is, and putting it together, and then you get to name it. They wanted to name these dinosaurs. So they were still kind of cordial friends because they had been classmates. And so uh, Edward Cope, the guy with the mustache, so mustache Cope, 
he, he actually named one of his first finds after Marsh. Marsh appreciated that. So the next year, he found a dinosaur, and uh, he named it after Cope. And we have this a beautiful uh, kind of bromance starting to happen here between these two guys. But then things went a little south. Um, Edward Cope found what's called an elasmosaurus. Elasmosaurus, probably not one of the dinosaurs you had on your jammies as a little kid, okay? Not one of the more famous uh, dinosaurs. And I say little kid, maybe you still have dinosaur jammies and who am I to judge that, okay? Um, What does an elasmosaurus look like? Here's a skeleton of elasmosaurus. He discovered this and put all those bones together, which looks like a pretty meticulous job. That's a lot of vertebrae right there. And he put all those together. He brought his friend Marsh to see this. He had already written that up. He had already printed it up and uh, published it. It was getting spread around the academic community with including drawings and sketches of the elasmosaurus. And Marsh looked at it. He was hoping to impress his friends. His friend Marsh, Marsh looked at it, bearded Marsh, and uh, he said, um, hey, uh, I think you've got the skull on the wrong side, which is pretty embarrassing because of like, how dramatic this dinosaur is. And he says, what? No. And they had this long argument, so they bring in a third paleontologist who took the skull, put it on the other end of the skeleton, which is how it is right now. And um, at that point, Cope was humiliated and uh, realized that he needed to go find all of the articles that he had published with the sketches um, with the head on the wrong end and, and tried to buy all of them up. He was very, very embarrassed. That put a little bit of a wrench into their relationship, um, but things went really bad one day when Mustache Cope invited Bearded Marsh over to a quarry where he was finding tons and tons of dinosaur bones. And while there, uh, Marsh met some people, and behind Mustache Cope's back, Bearded Marsh made an arrangement so any more dinosaur bones they find at this quarry that Cope kind of felt like he had proprietary rights over would be sent not to Cope, but to Marsh at Yale. At that point, the friendship was over, and a feud started that would last the rest of their lives. Now, how bad was this feud? Well, they sent nasty letters back and forth to each other. They also talked trash about each other pretty viciously out in the open in public. It even actually was in the newspaper. These were two very high-profile individuals, and now they're tearing each other down, criticizing each other. It got so bad, they both sent spies to watch what the other was doing and um, trying, to, trying to figure out what edge that they had. They're both just trying to collect as many dinosaurs as they possibly could to outdo the other. And there's even some legends that there was one of them that was, was excavating so many dinosaur bones, they took all that they could carry in their caravan, and then the rest they destroyed so that the other couldn't get it. Now, on one hand, it's because of this fierce competition that these two were driven to find so many dinosaur bones and that, that competitive spirit drove them. But the consequences are probably far worse because in their, in their rush 
to find more and more and more dinosaur bones, there was often shoddy scientific work done. They, they constructed the dinosaurs wrongly. They uh, often, one would find a, a dinosaur specimen, the other would find the same specimen, and then they'd both name them, so there's not an official scientific name because there's two different names. And it's actually taken even into modern day for modern paleontologists to untangle the crazy knot that these two created. Now let me ask you, what drove these two prolific scientists? Very influential, they've given us a lot of things, but what drove these scientists? Was it the dinosaurs? Clearly it wasn't the dinosaurs. If it was the dinosaurs, having integrity with their work would be the number one priority. They wouldn't put science second. What was first for these two men was themselves. It was ego. It was success. It was fame. It was recognition. By the way, by the end of both of their lives, this feud had cost both of them everything. They died almost penniless and alone. Um, one of them had, and by, and by the end, pretty much all of their, their, uh, their fines uh, confiscated. It, it, it drove them uh, in their drive for success. Were there, did, did that com competitiveness, did it kind of lift them some? Yeah, but it, it in the end, it was not worth it. They lost everything. What drove them? It was themselves. They were not in it for the science. They were not in it for, for making a contribution to, to history. They were in it for, for their own egos. You know, um, that is an important question every single Christian has to answer about their leadership. These two men were very, very influential, but they leveraged their influence for themselves. Very important question every Christian has to, has to ask themselves and has to answer authentically. What am I leveraging my influence for? Now let's just define what we're talking about just right up front. Um, we often think about leadership as a position or a title. But as you know, let me remind you, leadership is not about a position or a title. Leadership is about influencing those around you. In fact, in a, in a uh, marketplace setting, in a meeting, often the most influential person in the room is not the person with the title. It's not about having a title or a position. You already have influence. You have influence over your friends. You have influence um, as, as a parent. You have influence among your neighbors. You have influence at your place of work. You may be the lowest on the totem pole at work, but you have influence. If you have position, you have some, you have, uh, you, you can potentially have even more leverage for that influence, but anyone can have influence. Everyone does have influence. 
The question is, how do we leverage that influence? Do we leverage it for ourselves or do we leverage it for others? I want to take a look at a, a passage. It's really a book that gives us two case studies. We're going to treat this like a case study. Two case studies, two different leaders, and their lives intersect in the same story. And you'll see the difference between leveraging influence for yourself or leveraging influence for others. And the story is, the book of, is in the book of Esther. Now, I wish we could go through the entire story. I'm going to have to summarize portions of it, and then we'll drill down into one part of it. But let me just give you the background of this book. This book is set in Persia, ancient Persia. Persia is the world power. One of the largest uh, kingdoms in world history was the Persian kingdom. In biblical history, this is positioned towards the end of the Old Testament, as where, where, it, where it takes place. This is long after Abraham and Moses and David, long after the Babylonians have destroyed Jerusalem and taken people back into exile. The Persians then uh, over, uh, overcome the Babylonians, and they become the world power. And it's in the Persian reign that they start sending the Jewish people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and the temple under leaders like uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. It's under that Persian reign that we have the story of Esther, or her Hebrew name, Hadassah, and King Ahasuerus. Now, here's, what, here's how this plays out. We open the book of, of Esther, and King Ahasuerus has um, his wife, uh, Queen Vashti, makes a decision he does not like, so he basically dethrones her, and he begins looking for another woman to add uh, among his harem that he will then raise up as positionally the queen. So he has his people go throughout all of his kingdom, finding available single ladies to bring them into his harem. Just if you've heard the story and you've heard it was a beauty contest, it definitely was not a beauty contest. They're being brought into, into uh, his harem. He will then select one of them to become queen. Now, uh, as the story plays out, he selects this uh, Jewish woman, Esther, to become his queen. So now there's a, uh, a Jewish young lady who serves in that position. Now, a little bit about Esther. Esther is an orphan. Both of her parents have passed away. She's being raised uh, in the family of one of her relatives, a man named Mordecai, who actually works in the palace. He has raised her up, and so he actually uh, works there too and is trying to keep an eye on, on his uh, cousin, Esther. <clears throat> Excuse me, Esther. So we're going to pick up the story in Esther chapter 3. Open with me to Esther chapter 3. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, 
Why do you transgress the king's command? And they, when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. Uh, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, and he disdained to lay hands uh, he, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Let's pause there just for uh, a second. Um, well, how does this, what's happening here? Well, um, you've got Haman, He's an Agagite, and he has been promoted to being one of the officials. He's basically at the right hand of King Ahasuerus, who's got extraordinary power. I mean, this guy would be one of the most powerful men in history. He's got extraordinary power. And you've got Haman. Um, this Agagite has been raised up to his right hand. Haman is a very wealthy, influential person. And as he rides into the, the gate... Everyone stops, bows to the ground before him, and Haman kind of likes it. Mordecai, however, he does not feel in conviction that he can bow down before Haman, and so he doesn't bow down. And Haman's people come up and be like, How, why are you not bowing down to Haman? And finally, they learn that he is a Jewish man. And so they tell this to Haman. And Haman um, then decides... He's not, he, he's, so, he's so angry that Mordecai is not bowing down to him that he decides to kill Haman. Right, Haman decides to kill Mordecai. Now, there's some backstory if we went back several hundred years between the Jewish people and the Agagites. We can't get into all of that, but there's a, there's a strong, there's a lot of tension between these two people groups that we can't get into that. But he's so mad he decides to kill Mordecai. When he hears that Mordecai is a Jewish man, he decides the right thing in his mind to do is to exterminate an entire people group. The Jewish people probably are mostly all living within the Persian Empire. So if he can use his influence with the king to get everyone in the uh, Persian, every Jewish person in the in the Persian Empire uh, killed, that pretty much wipes out a people group. So here's what, um, he, here's what Haman does. He goes to um, the king, and he says, Look, King Ahasuerus, you know, there's a people within your kingdom. They don't follow your laws. They're a threat to you. And so here's what I would like to do. I would like to set up a day, and on that day, it is legal for anyone in any village, anywhere in your kingdom, that knows of a Jewish family. It would be legal for them to slaughter that entire family, man, woman, and child. And if they do slaughter that family, then they are rewarded by taking all their stuff. They basically plunder that family. Let's make it legal for that to happen anywhere in your kingdom. And by the way, if you do that, 
I will add 10,000 talents of silver to your treasury. Now, 10,000 talents of silver, if, it was, if you had 10,000 talents of silver, today you would have upwards of $200 million. Now, probably the buying power is probably different back in those days. The main point is this is an enormous sum of money. Now, maybe when uh, Ahasuerus heard the whole bit about the talents, he liked the idea and signed it into law. It then goes to every part of the kingdom, and now all of these cities are gathering together, and they're hearing this rule being read that on a certain day, a few months' time from now, um, when on that day, you can kill anyone who's a Jewish person, and you can take all their stuff, which you can imagine how that just turns the whole kingdom in an uproar. You can imagine the tension in every village, every city throughout most of the known world at that time. Mordecai hears of this, obviously deeply burdened, tears his clothes, puts sackcloth on, puts ashes on his head, and he lets um, uh, Queen Esther know what's going on. Tells her what's going on, and he asks her to use her influence see if there's something that can be done. This is what Esther says back. I want you to go now to Esther chapter 4. We're going to pick it up in verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants... And all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. Esther says, look, Mordecai, it's not that easy. I don't just waltz into the king, okay? Remember the, the character of someone like Ahasuerus. He, as a reflex, signed into law that cannot be revoked. As a reflex, he uh, signed into, into law the extermination of a people group. This is not a good guy. I know maybe you've seen the Esther movie. This is not a romance between Esther and Ahasuerus. This is not, a good, this is not a, a good situation for Esther. She is married to a guy that is not a good dude, a dangerous guy. When she walks in, she's, yes, she has a, the favor of Ahasuerus, but when she walks in, he's not looking at his long-lost love. He's got a whole harem of women. She's saying, it's not that easy. I don't, I don't just waltz in to see the king. I haven't seen the king in a month. Now watch what Mordecai says back to her. Um, go to Esther chapter 4, verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. 
For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Isn't that amazing? It's his faith in God's, in God's promise, his plan for the redemption of history. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? This is, this is so important. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. It's the capital. And hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Mordecai says, okay, for starters, Esther, you've got to realize you're not safe either. You're not safe. And then he says this. This is so, so interesting. He says, um, God doesn't need you, Esther. Do you notice that? God has a plan that is not going to be stopped. He doesn't need you, but maybe this is the reason he placed you here. The most famous verse in the whole book of Esther. Maybe you were placed here for such a time as this. You're here for this moment. This is God's got a plan, and he wants to incorporate you into his plan. He's placed you here, Esther. Um, and I think it's that last part that connects with her because, you know, she is in the palace. It's, it, most people in the palace do not know her Jewish background. You know, she's got better odds of just staying silent and seeing what happens in the palace than going before the king. But she says, if I perish, I perish. She realizes this is what God has called her to do. She's going to risk her life. She's going to leverage her influence for others. And then she calls. She says, but please get all of the Jewish people in all of the capital city of Susa to pray and fast for three days. And on the third day, I will go before the king. So let me tell you how the story plays out. They all pray. They all fast. Esther walks in before the king. And by God's grace, the king extends the scepter uh, to Esther. Esther uses God-given wisdom. Her plan for this is absolutely brilliant, the way she's going to expose what's going on to the king. God just gives her wisdom. She has a wonderful strategy on how to do this. She, um, she, uh, I can't go into all the details, but eventually she exposes the plot and she creates a scenario where it's just her, the king, and Haman there um, at, at, a, at a banquet. She exposes the plot. She exposes her identity as a Jewish woman and exposes the plot that Haman had plotted against all of the Jewish people. In fact, by the way, Haman had actually built a gallows specially for Mordecai. 
the one who wouldn't bow to him. This is where, e where Haman's ego is. He was going to not just destroy this people group, but he had a special plan for Mordecai. He built a gallows. Now, the, we translate that as gallows, but the idea of hanging someone by their neck that is a more of a modern concept. It's not a gallows like if you've ever played the game hangman and you draw a little gallows. It's not like that. The actual Hebrew word there is tree. It was, a, it was probably, knowing ancient Persian culture, it was probably a wooden spike. It went 75 feet into the air. And if it's like how Persians operated at that time, it was to, it was to impale Mordecai on. That was what, how, what he planned for Mordecai. He's sitting there at this banquet. Esther tells the king what's going on, uh, identifies her, her own heritage as a Jewish woman. The king is outraged. He has Haman uh, removed, and he says, in fact, take Haman and put, place him on the tree. Place him on the tree that, he'd, that he had played, he had set up for Mordecai. And he had especially set this up for Mordecai because in the ancient Jewish law, to be hanged on a tree was the utmost curse. And so he hangs Haman on the tree in Mordecai's place. And then they're left with, well, now what are we going to do about this, about this command? Well, by law, he cannot revoke something he wrote into law, so he commissions a new law. And he commands all of the Jewish people to gather together in clusters so that they can defend themselves. He then takes Mordecai, raises Mordecai to his right hand in Haman's place. So Haman and Mordecai completely switch places. And now in every province, because now they're all afraid of Mordecai, this Jewish man that now has such a high-ranking position, they're so afraid of him that now all the local leaders all help these clusters of Jewish people. And the day comes that's been, that they've been all anticipating, and God shows his favor on the Jewish people. And what ends up happening is all of the people that are against the Jewish people, all of their enemies, are now exposed because they try to attack the Jewish people, and God gives them victory over all of them. He gives the Jewish people victory. And to this day, there is a feast called Purim that is celebrated even into, into modern times, celebrating God's incredible blessing to the Jewish people. So much in here. We have, we have two case studies of leadership here. Excuse me. We've got Haman and Esther. What do we learn from these two? You know, we're in a series called uh, City Changers, and we've been talking about how do we every day... City change is not going to happen by by just what we do here on Sunday. That's, that's not really how it's going to happen. It's when we are deployed as the church, mobilized as disciples, as mathetes into the city, and it's decisions and things that the Holy Spirit does through you every day as we're all scattered through the city, sprinkled like granules, granular, granules of salt in our city. That's how city change happens. And so we've talked about several things throughout this series. We've talked about being the incarnational presence of Christ. We've talked about being innovative. We've talked about being industrious. We've talked about uh, having integrity. But this, this passage teaches us about influence. You have influence. You have it. 
You have people you influence. You have neighbors you influence. You have uh, family members you influence. You have people at your work that you influence. You have people at your school that you influence. You have people that you influence. You may not have position. You may not have a title, but you have influence. In fact, you have been placed there for such a time as this. There's a moment now, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday of this week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Every day, there are moments that you have been placed there for such a time as this. You have influence. But the question is, what do you leverage it for? How did Haman use his influence? He used his influence, expended it for himself. He wanted glory. He so badly wanted glory that anyone who stood in his way, he would destroy. And here's the thing. Leaders who are going to use their influence from themselves, this is where it always will end up. Because eventually people become an obstacle for them getting what they want. And so they've got to steamroll over them. So the question is, is it a Haman style of leadership, type of leadership, where ultimately it's for my glory, for my benefit, for my wealth, for my fame, for my success, for my career goals, for what I want? Or is it like Esther? How did Esther leverage her influence? She put it all on the line, risking her very life. She gave everything. She gave everything to stand before that king on that third day so that her people could be rescued. She expended it for others. So the question is, the influence you have, is it gonna be used for you or is it gonna be used for others? How will you use that? Church, you, you know this is not a new concept. You know this. This is a reminder. This is an opportunity to take a deep dive in your soul and look into your soul because you know this. In fact, our own society and culture, as individualistic as it is, as self-absorbed as our culture tends to be, couldn't help but stumble across this truth. It's so fundamentally true that our own culture is fumbled across it. In 1970, a guy by the name of Robert Greenleaf wrote an article, published an article called The Servant Leader and started what's called the Modern Servant Leader Movement, even set up uh, an institute to train servant leaders. And then now, more than 20 years, years ago, the landmark business book, Good to Great, Jim Collins set out to do a study. You know this. Jim Collins set up to do a study on what made businesses great. He was not wanting to write a leadership book, but he followed the evidence. And one of the things he could not deny is there is a certain type of leader that led extraordinary organizations. And he called it the level five leader. Let me just read you um, the quotes that Jim Collins says about what a level five leader is. Check this out. We're going to pull them up on the screen. Here's what he says. Level five leaders embody a paradoxical mix of personal humility and professional will. They are ambitious to be sure, but not ambitious first and foremost for the, for, um, but first and foremost for the company, not themselves. 
He goes on to say this, level five leaders display a compelling modesty, are self-effacing and understated. In contrast, two-thirds of the comparison companies had leaders with gargantuan personal egos that contributed to the demise or continued mediocrity of the company. He, I love this line. He says, level five leaders are more plow, plow horse than show horse. Our, our, our society... As much as we are hero celebrity worshipers, as much as we're all about self-actualization, as much as we're all about individualism and meeting your own goals and you, you, you put yourself first and, and look after yourself, we have in all of our research into, into the, the business practices and leadership practices, we cannot deny what's true. Here's what's true. Jesus said it. 2,000 years ago, Matthew chapter 23, here's what Jesus said. For the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Bottom line, is your leadership for you or for others? If you're tempted to say, look, I can't, how could I go about just being for others and not myself? I'll be ruined. Like, how can you get ahead if you're just for others all the time? Well, you're, don't ask me that question. You're going to have to square up to Jesus. This is what Jesus said. And what he said is, who are you banking on exalting you? Do you want to try and exalt you? Or do you want to leave God as the one who's going to exalt you. Let God do it. He's pretty capable. Um, your influence, it's not for you. Your leadership is not for you. Your position is not for you. Your title is not for you. Your career is not for you. It's not for your goals. It's not ultimately, it's not for your retirement. It's not ultimately for your comfort. It's not ultimately for you. It's an opportunity to serve others. Tomorrow, you go, you're gonna go to work and you'll be faced with a decision. A decision and it's gonna be, well, this is better for me, but is it better for everyone that I work with? This is better for me, but is it better for the company? This is better for me, but is it better for my kids? This is good for my career, but ultimately, is it better for my family? Your, your life is not for you. It's for God first, and then he tells us it's for others second. Let's, let's, let me ask you this diagnostic question. If you're like, look, how do I know? Like, let's just get a little bit more granular. Let me just ask you this one question. When you walk into a room, who in the room are you most drawn to? The people of high capacity or the people of deep need? If you're most drawn to the people of high capacity, it's likely because they can do something for you. But the person that can do nothing for you, that's an opportunity to serve. And that's how God, that's what Jesus said, is the greatest among us is those who serve. What if you 
on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every day, walked in and said, who has a need? Who can I serve today? What if you put a reminder on your desk that you're there to serve? What if you wrote down a, that, that verse in Matthew 23 to be reminded every day that greatness is not about chasing accolades and wealth. Greatness is following in the footsteps of your, of your Savior, Jesus, and giving your life to serve. What if you memorized that? What if you thought about it? What if you rehearsed that over and over and over until you, you stepped into the greatness, the culture of his kingdom, and became a servant? I want to close with a, an example of a great servant. This is a, <clears throat> a recent article. It was uh, posted just a few days ago by a man named uh, Vasil Ostry. He's a pastor in the Ukraine. And he's talking about why when business leaders and businessmen and and uh, other leaders and other people of resources that could leave left, um, why he, his wife, and his four daughters, 16 and under, stayed. This is what he said. In recent days, the events from the book of Esther have become real to us in Ukraine. It's as if the decree is signed and Haman has the license to destroy an entire nation. The gallows are ready. Ukraine is simply waiting. He goes on to say this. Why is he staying? Why is he training his people? Pulls his, his church together and he's, he's been training them, teaching them. And, and, and he gave this reason. He said, if the church is not relevant at a time of crisis then it is not relevant in a time of peace. He pulled his people together and he started training these, these men and women first aid, how to um, tourniquet an arm, how to stop bleeding. And he said there are people in his church, Christians, that said, you know, I was planning to leave, but since you've trained me what to do now, I know why I'm supposed to stay. I'm going to serve my neighbors. And he closes with this. We will shelter the weak, serve the suffering, and mend the broken. And as we do, we offer the unshakable hope of Christ and his gospel. While we may feel helpless in the face of such a crisis, we can pray like Esther. Ukraine is not God's covenant people, but like Israel, our hope is that the Lord will remove the danger as he did for his ancient people. And as we stay, we pray the church in Ukraine will faithfully trust the Lord and serve our neighbors. And at the other end of this, you and I both know, the Ukraine will not forget about the faithfulness of the Ukrainian church. They stayed in the, they ran to the needy. They didn't try to save themselves. Christian, that's your heritage. That's who you're named for. You're named for Jesus Christ, Christian. 
he had a third day moment as well. On the third day, his triumphal act set, us, set all of us free from sin and death. He traded places with you. You and I deserved the gallows. He came from the right hand and took the tree, the curse of the tree. And we who deserved the curse of the tree now sit at the right hand of God with him. We're seated on the throne with Jesus. That's your, that is your heritage. That's who we are. And if we dream of having the heroic courage of our Ukrainian brothers and sisters one day, then we sure be able to do it on Monday morning. Some of you, your first step is to embrace the King of kings and Lord of lords. And even though he's crowned with many crowns, he is a servant. Surrender your allegiance to the servant king and become a citizen of his kingdom. Let me lead us in a time of prayer. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? If you're here this morning and you want to give your allegiance to Jesus Christ, the servant king, and become part of his kingdom, if you want to find salvation today, put your faith in him and let him be your king. Let him run your life. I want to lead you in a prayer. Simply right there in your seat, I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. Silently say this to God. Jesus, I surrender to you. I make you my king. I believe you traded places with me. You died on a cross. That was my punishment, but you took it. It's my punishment because of my sin. But you rose again. And you were seated at the right hand of God. And you've welcomed me in. I accept that today, and I want to walk a new life with you. In Jesus' name, amen. If that was your prayer just then, for those of you watching online or if you're sitting here, if that was your prayer, um, you prayed that and found salvation in Jesus. What I want you to do is I want you to grab your cell phone. I want you to go to cityrev.org slash faith because we want to mail you a Bible. We want you to help you as you're beginning this journey of following Jesus. And uh, you can also, if you're here in person, you can grab that Get Connected card. You can fill that out, put that in one of the giving boxes. Uh, even better would be take it to the guest services. And uh, we've got a Bible we can put in your hands today. Church, uh, there's always things, always things going on in our world, in our city, in our lives that seem overwhelming. But we're going to end being reminded of the one who has all power and authority over all the world. Everything is in his hands. It, it's not in governmental leaders that we put our trust. We know who sits on the throne. Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Church, do you believe that? Jesus is King of Kings and he's Lord of Lords. And we are waiting for the Lion of Judah to rise up on our behalf and on those around the world for the cause of justice. So let's sing this back to him. Would you stand with me as we close?
Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.